2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let's begin in verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel, for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and wor- word and work. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we're in the truth. We thank you that we're not running from you, those of us that know you here. We thank you that our, our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you've given us promises that, are, that you say are yea and amen, and that you've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Lord, you've given us so much, Lord. You've lavished upon us such great spiritual wealth. And Lord, we know that you're continuing to work through those things to make us more like Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this time for that purpose. We know, Lord, that you want to bring encouragement where it is needed, and you want to bring exhortation where it's needed. And you want us to have perspective, your perspective, on our lives and on this world and where you're taking this world because you are taking it in a certain direction. We thank you that you're in control. We thank you, Lord, that nothing surprises you. And we thank you, Lord, that you don't waste anything in our lives to bear fruit and to break us and prune us for your purposes, your glory, and your calling. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we saw last week, the Apostle Paul is beginning this epistle to this church that he loves so much. Uh, We saw last week that he brought incredible encouragement. In fact, Chapter 1 constitutes so much encouragement from the Apostle Paul to these uh, new believers. They've only been believers for about six months to a year, maybe a year and a half, two years tops. They're going through tremendous persecution at this time. The church began with persecution being the context and their portion with, with 
what they had to deal with and how they saw Paul have, and the team struggle regarding uh, the persecution of the Jews. But we also saw that they're going through affliction and they're going through tribulation, crushing tribulation, where it takes the breath out of you or it's so all-consuming that it's hard to, to concentrate, to put two thoughts together. And, and he knows that they're very vulnerable. And so we saw last week he said, we're going to pray for you. We're going to pray for you that you're going to be strengthened. We're going to pray for you that you'll walk worthy of the calling that that you've been called with and that you'd be strengthened and and encouraged and so forth. So the Apostle Paul aimed to bring uh, perspective regarding their tribulation and what they were going through and and their challenges and so forth. Now we see in chapter 2 today, we see him correct a, a doctrinal issue, some bad doctrine that had infiltrated their church. And then next week we'll see uh, bad behavior regarding someone wanting to just not work and not be responsible because of the coming of the Lord being imminent. And so he corrects that. And so today we, we focus on uh, this bad doctrine. And, and so he begins in verse 1. He says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So he begins with this, you know, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then notice he adds to it, and our gathering together to him. Now, in his first epistle, he spoke regarding the second coming of Christ and the rapture uh, very uh, prolifically, and, and, and at the end of every chapter, as we saw, he deals with something related to the coming of the Lord. And so there's been this infiltration now, though, since his first letter, that these people have come in and they've introduced this teaching that's troubling them. And, he, and he, he notes that. And he says that we ask you, notice that in verse 1, he says, we ask you not to, to be soon shaken in mind or troubled regarding this teaching. And we'll get into it in a minute. But first of all, their reaction to it. And he doesn't want them to be troubled or shaken. Now, shaken means to be knocked down. You ever been knocked down? You're just flattened. I mean, you could stand in the ocean and you're not paying attention. You know, you're, you're waving at someone there and they're, they're playing volleyball and you're, you're noticing, you know, how, how badly they're playing volleyball. That's usually what it looks like when I'm playing. Uh, and you're not paying attention. This wave just smacks you and you're just totally knocked down. Or maybe you're playing with your, your kids and you're, you're pillow fighting. We've been known to have a few pillow fights in our house. And, of course, I always dominate. Just, just my pure manly strength, just pounding and showing them who's boss. You know, of course, that's how insecure I am. And then you're not paying attention, and then, boom! You know, my son Henry will just smack me and knock me completely over. And that's kind of what's going on spiritually, emotionally, mentally. They're being uh, shaken. They're being spiritually knocked down. And, and they're also being troubled, which means panic. You know, sometimes we hear of those panic buttons that you can press. And if your home is set up to have a, you know, a, a secure room and you hit the panic button and then everything shuts down and you get in the secure room and you're safe from anyone that's trying to attack from without and you're protected. And, and he's saying, don't panic. And that's, that's really what they're focusing on because of this news that they've heard this bad teaching that's come their way. They've been knocked down and they're, they're starting to panic. And, and Paul says, don't believe it. Regardless of 
how it comes to you. And he covers all the bases. Notice in the middle of verse 2, he says, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. And so he says, however, it's, it's, it's as if he doesn't really know for sure where, how it came. But he, know that, he knows that it, it came to them. He's heard reports that this, this bad teaching had come their way. And he's saying whether, it doesn't matter if it's, it's happened by spirit, or like in other words, a, a, a prophecy, a false prophecy had come forth stating that this, this whole situation is unfolding contrary to how Paul has already laid it out to them. Um, or, you know, we all, we all know that bad teaching, you know, doctrines of demons ultimately come from the enemy. So he could be referring to that. But he says, or by word or by letter, and as if someone had given a letter to you and said it's from me. Don't believe it. And, and so often we've seen in Paul's epistles, he'll actually say at the end, this is Paul in my own hand. And what he's doing is he's authenticating the epistle as from him because they knew his signature. And he would, wouldn't write the whole thing. He'd have someone uh, you know, record it as he would dictate. But then at the end, he would authenticate it by signing it. And, and so because there was, this was a prolific issue, this was a, a common problem where false teachers would come in and you'd think that they wouldn't be so uh, heinous as to do this, but they would actually write a false epistle saying it was from one of the apostles and, and thus they would uh, have some credibility. False teaching always has to kind of attach itself to something that is truly legitimate to help it have credibility. You know, the non-Christian cults, they will say that they're Christian and they will uh, adopt a lot of the same terminology they will do a lot of the same practices. They get as, and if they get as close as to, to the truth as they can without being the truth. And, and if you were coming up with some tactic to be deceitful, that's what you would do. And that's what I would do. To try to get as close to the truth as you possibly can without actually accomplishing it. And so he says, doesn't matter how it comes to you, don't, and he asks them. You know, it's up to them. This is a willful thing. They can choose to believe what Paul said or not. And he says, we ask you, don't be knocked down. Don't have panic in your hearts by some news that comes through all these different means because it's not true. It's not reality there. And he says what the issue was as, as though the day of Christ had come. And he, and he continues in verse 3 by saying, let no one deceive you by any means. Again, deception is the issue. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So what were they concerned about? What were the Thessalonians focused on? What was knocking them down? What was causing them to have panic in their hearts that Paul sees as so important that he needs to write this, this uh, chapter to address? Well, it was the fact that they had thought that the, the rapture had already come. Jesus uh, uh, they were taught that Jesus was going to come back for the rapture. We saw that in the last book in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He speaks very specifically about the, the time in human history where there'll be a generation that's alive when Jesus comes back for his church. And those that are alive at that time, and we may be that generation. I believe that we are. But uh, whoever is alive at that time that are believers, the Holy Spirit will be the catalyst that that actually makes their body be transformed into their new uh, glorified body at the same time. Just, just after the dead in Christ is, rises and get their new bodies at that time. And so that's, that's something that was clear to them. 
Paul's already explained that to them. In fact, he mentions in the first book, in 1 Thessalonians, that he's already mentioned these things to them. So sometimes we think a new Christian, shouldn't, we shouldn't be teaching eschatology and the study of end times to a new believer. That's way down on the list. That's not way down on the list. The Apostle Paul was with them around three weeks the first time. And, and here he is talking to them about the rapture, about end times, about watching and waiting and being prepared for when the Lord Jesus comes. So evidently these false teachers have come in, infiltrated, however they've chosen to do it, and they've said, you missed the rapture. You missed it. Sorry. <laughs> you know, uh, you're, you're experiencing and we're experiencing so much persecution that this is the great tribulation. This is the day of the Lord, and that's important for us to see because we see him use the word day there and the, and the day of Christ in verse 2 and so forth. And, and he's talking about this time of wrath because even in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is talking about not just a day. It's, it's, it's uh, better described as a season, a season of the Lord, and it's never associated with anything good. It's always referred to as a time of judgment. And so Paul has already explained this to them in person. And he's already talked to him about it in his first epistle. And so they were waiting for the Lord to come. They were waiting for Jesus to come back for them and gather them. That's what he says in verse 1, and are gathering together to him. And, and so here this teaching was that, that had come to them that you had missed the rapture and now you're in the day of the Lord. Now you're in that, that span of time that begins with uh, the, the uh, Antichrist signing that peace covenant with Israel. And then continues, actually the day of the Lord continues in, in some respects all the way through the millennium. But it's, it's mainly referring to the, the time of the seven-year tribulation where his wrath is being poured out on this Christ-rejecting world. So they're expecting the rapture at any moment. And then someone comes and says, we, we, you missed it. And we're in the day of the Lord. And they're saying, that's why you're experiencing what you're experiencing right now. That's why you're experiencing the persecution that you're experiencing. That's why it's so difficult and you have this tribulation, you have this affliction because you're in the day of the Lord. You're in that time of that seven-year tribulation. Now that would make their heart absolutely sink because in part the, ra the rapture was design is designed and was designed for them to bring comfort to them, to bring comfort. That's why he says in the first epistle, comfort one another with these words. What words? The words that he could come back at any moment and he's going to snatch us up to be with him. And so we will ever always be with the Lord. He says comfort one another with those words. So now the comfort, the potential for comfort in that has been removed in their minds. Because now they've missed it somehow. And now they're in this great tribulation and all they, all they have to look forward to now is more judgment and, and the wrath of God and, and all these things. But Paul's already told them in his last epistle that we're not appointed unto wrath. That we're going to miss that at that time. We're not appointed unto wrath eternally regarding hell, but we're also not appointed unto wrath related to God pouring out his wrath on this earth. And so he wants to comfort them and he wants to encourage them and say, don't believe anything that you've heard regarding you missing the rapture, because you haven't. I told you in person and, and what I said was true. And then he's going to give them uh, uh, two things that have to happen before the, 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 um, the, the day of the Lord or the, the time of that tribulation uh, begins. He's going to give them 
uh, two things in verse 3. And he says, the first thing is that that day or that time of tribulation will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So we have to deal with this. What is this falling away in verse 3? Well, there's controversy related to it, just so you are aware of that. But as I study this whole word falling away and, and so forth, because oftentimes it's communicated as a time of apostasy, where people fall away from the faith. You know, uh, Timothy, or Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, or 4 rather, that in the last days some will depart from the faith. And he gives this whole list and, and how, the, the, how it will look in the end times and so forth regarding spiritual, of spiritual falling away. And, and, and the end times is here. You know, we're, we're in the last days. We've been in the last days since the day of Pentecost where Peter stood up on that day and he, get, he quoted Joel and he talks about that this, these things are fulfilled in the last days. And he's talking about that time. We're in the last of the last days, if you will. You know, we believe that we're, he's going to come back any, and it's all lining up. He's going to come back at any time. And so we're waiting for that. So there is going to be a falling away in apostasy and so forth. We're told that in other places. But in here, he doesn't say falling away from what? He doesn't say falling away from the faith. He doesn't say falling away from the Lord. He doesn't say any of that. He just says, unless the falling away comes first. And when you look at that word, it means really to depart. And usually we look at this scripture, this unless the falling away comes first, as a departure from the Lord, you know, a, 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 a spiritual departing, a leaving uh, from the faith, so to speak. But, it, but it's, I believe since he doesn't say the the, the place from which people are falling or the person from whom they are falling. And, and also he says the word the falling. He says uses the definite article the before falling there. It's not just any falling away. See, Timothy, what, what, what we read in Timothy that Paul wrote is a general apostasy that happens throughout the, the, the church age. And that ebbs and flows. People fall away in, in, in different um, degrees at different times and as we get closer to the end I believe there will be more and more of a, of a spiritual falling away I mean you 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 pull the the pastors and all the denominations and what they believe about the the deity of Christ and about uh, the resurrection of Christ and the inerrancy of scripture and all these foundational essential things that we hold true and in larger and larger numbers they're rejecting those things so I believe in that sense yes it is increasing here but I believe that since he's talking about this this one event, he's talking about the falling away, the departure, the departing. I believe he's talking about the rapture here because we will depart from this world and we will be with Christ. That's the context that he's speaking into. He's already told them about the rapture and how it's supposed to comfort. And, and, and so this whole thing is supposed to be comforting to, to, to them and to us. And so he's, I believe he's saying, and of course I wouldn't bet the farm on it, you know, it still could mean some kind of spiritual uh, departure that we're not aware of, that Paul spoke specifically to them that we're not privy to, but I believe the, the context is, it fits better to talk about a, a physical departing from this world, that we depart from this world and caught up to be uh, with him. And so he says that has to happen. There has to be a a physical departure first and they were still there they were still on this earth so obviously they didn't miss the rapture because they're still there they're not in heaven with him 
So he says now also the man of sin being revealed. That's the second thing that has to happen before this day of the Lord or this time of tribulation that comes on this world. And, and so the Bible speaks of this, this man of sin. Who is this man of sin? Well, we commonly refer to him as the Antichrist. Uh, he's called also here the son of perdition. And he's so, so the man of sin, the man of, of, of perdition. And the man of sin, he's just a man that's just lawless. He's just a man that is disobedient to, to God in every way. He's the epitome of disobedience. So he's referred to as the man of sin, but also the man of perdition. And perdition means destruction. And what it's really saying here is that he is going to be destroyed. And that's, he's going to get into that regarding uh, the Lord, what the Lord Jesus does when he comes back physically to this, to this earth and deals with the Antichrist. He's going to be destroyed. So he's called the son of perdition, the son of destruction. But also we know that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So we know that the enemy comes to destroy, and this man who's raised up, this, this world leader that's going to lead this whole world eventually, he's going to be very much engaged in destroying people's lives. And so uh, we're, we're, he's given many different names. John is the only one that really describes him as the Antichrist, and we see that in 1 John chapter 2, where he says that you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, but many Antichrists have come into the world. He's talking about the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of this rejection of of the Messiah and this rejection that the Messiah came in the flesh. John will also say in his epistles that he who denies that that the Christ came in the flesh is the spirit of Antichrist. So anyone that denies the deity of Christ, anyone that denies that he came physically to this world uh, is of the spirit of Antichrist. But there will come the Antichrist. The one that epitomizes all of it. That is the ultimate example of the rejection of Christ. The Antichrist. He's against Christ. He's the opposite of Christ in that sense. But we're not just told of him in the, Old, in the New Testament. We're told of him in the, in the Old Testament. We're introduced to him in Daniel chapter 7. Where uh, Daniel refers to him inspired by the Spirit as the little horn. And you can do a, a study in Daniel chapter 7 and through uh, 11 and you can see exactly what this man's going to do and so often this imagery that we see and we'll see it when we get to revelation a lot of it's already been laid down beforehand in the old testament and those symbols and those things those metaphors that sometimes we get stumbled by in the book of revelation and other places they have precedent in the old testament and so that that consistency carries through into the new testament and we get to learn a lot about him uh, even before we get to uh, the revelation that we get to uh, enjoy regarding the new covenant. Now, Daniel 11 refers to him as someone who doesn't regard the God of his father. So man, from that, many people believe that he's Jewish, although that case can't be made airtight in an airtight way. Whoever, whoever uh, you know, he was, his fathers were worshiping false gods or, or the true and living God, he doesn't regard them. And he regards himself as God, as we'll get to in a moment. We're also told, told in Daniel 11 that he uh, doesn't have a desire for women. So some people think he's homosexual or that he's just not concerned about uh, the opposite sex uh, at all and doesn't focus on relationships. But it does lay out that he won't have a normal type relationship with people in, that, in, in some way. Lastly, we're told in Revelation chapter 11 that he's the beast. He just, John just sums it up, the beast. Uh, and we're, there's going to be a mark of the beast that 
represents him and the, and, and the number of man. He's going to be, everyone's going to be numbered, and they're going to be demonstrating that, that worship to him by that mark on their right hand or their forehead. It won't just be an economic advantage or mechanism to just make things easier without having cash. It will be an expression of worship to him. And everyone that takes that mark will never be able to be saved after that time. They'll be sealed. Their, their fate will be sealed. Now notice in verse 4, Paul explains what this man does uh, in part. He says, this man who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now you can write in your margin Daniel 11, because in Daniel 11, it gives all of this in vivid detail, and it actually mentions what we uh, are very familiar with, many of us, the abomination which causes desolation. And that event is a very specific event where in history, Atticus Epiphanes in about 168 B.C., he came and he offered a goat, uh, or not a goat, uh, a pig rather, uh, in the temple there and desecrated the, 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 uh, the temple and all, also offered sacrifices to Zeus. And, and there was a revolt, and the Maccabean revolt as, 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 a, uh, as a response to that. That was like a type to really what Daniel 11 is speaking about. Daniel 11 is speaking about something that's yet in our future that verse 4 is speaking of. And what that is, and Jesus referred to it, uh, in Matthew 24, when he said this, he said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. So there's an event about which Jesus speaks in Matthew 24. Jesus is speaking to Jews in Matthew 24. We know that in many different, uh, uh, there's many reasons, ways that we can know that. One of which is that he says, pray that your, your flight or your travel of, of departing and leaving after this Antichrist exposes himself for who he is to the Jews uh, as you're taking off don't pray that it isn't on the Sabbath he's talking to Jews and he and and Jesus said to them at one point he said I come in my father's name and you do not receive me but there will come one who comes in his own name and you will receive him and the Jews today are absolutely set up to receive and accept the Antichrist if you go to Israel today and you ask them when Messiah comes how will you recognize him? And they say, well, we know that he's going to be a political leader and he's going to bring peace. And many of them will say, and he's going to allow us to rebuild our temple. And what's interesting about verse 4 is that when he says, who, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God. There's no temple of God right now. This is yet future for us. Now, when Paul's writing this, this is one of his earliest epistles. Some people believe the Thessalonian epistles are the earliest ones, that w those with Galatians, the epistle to the Galatians there. Very, very early in the high 50s, in terms of 57, 58 AD there. And so the temple hadn't been destroyed yet. Herod's temple was still standing when Paul wrote this. And, and so he didn't know that in AD 70, 
that the Romans were going to come in under Titus and they were going to destroy that temple. And, and that's what Jesus prophesied about when he said, not one of these stones will be left on, one, on the other. They'll all be thrown down. They were so impressed with this temple and he says, it's not going to be here. And so the, the Apostle Paul's writing this and, and he doesn't know the timing of that. But the Apostle John would later write about 30 years later when he's writing the Revelation. He has to measure the temple. Now, <laughs> The temple doesn't exist at that time for John. He's going into the future, and he's having to measure the temple. There's going to be a third temple. Today, if you go to Israel, you can go to the Temple Institute. I've been there with Jeff. Uh, I don't know, Robert, were you there with us? Yeah, Robert was there. You got an amen over here. Uh, He went to the Temple Institute with us. And, And they are preparing everything that's needed for this third temple. They're breeding red heifers. They're all the all the articles they're making, and you can go there. and And they only show a limited amount of those things. They have all these other things stored in a, in a, another place, but they are actively preparing for this third temple. And they, I think, as Gentiles, we we can't fully fathom the 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 devotion that the Jews have towards that temple mount and the temple. I mean, you look at the Wailing Wall. Uh, there when they stick their little prayers in the little uh, cracks there and they go up to that that wailing wall that is such a holy place for them that isn't even the temple that's just the old retaining wall that went around the temple there and that is so holy to them so we can't even imagine how they would venerate and respect and be in awe of this temple and they want it so badly but there's a there's a, a mosque on the top the third holiest place in islam the dome of the rock there and it, it's been there since, I think, A.D. 600. And, and so they, they respect that. And so the, 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 uh, the, the Palestinians have been given control of the Temple Mount, even though the state of Israel owns it and has jurisdiction over it. They gave them, when they conquered Jerusalem in 67, they gave them control of that Temple Mount immediately because they didn't want a, a massive war at that time. They knew that they couldn't survive it at that time in, in some practical ways. So they gave them control over that. So you can go up on that uh, Temple Mount uh, once a week. They allow you know, outside non-Muslims to go up there. And the big question is, and the big controversy is, where's the temple going to go? And there is room. That temple, it wasn't that big. And there is room for it to be there. And where the court of the Gentiles used to be is where the Dome of the Rock is. And so that fits perfectly there. And in Daniel, he talks about that, that temple and the, the Gentiles having, having that area and so forth. So all of this is in, yet in our future. Think about this. God's just laying it out for us to see that all of this is going to happen. It's all leading up to a point of, of this culmination in human history where God's leading it towards his uh, end and his purposes. This Antichrist is going to come into that temple because we have the rapture that occurs, then we have him sign the seven-year peace contract with Israel. Probably part of that will be financing their temple. And everyone's going to marvel at this guy and just be so amazed that he could cause this peace. And so who would ever dream that somebody could broker this deal of having this temple be rebuilt right next to the Dome of the Rock and have those two people have a pseudo-peace there and, and be able to function, uh, you know, concurrently with one another regarding their holy places. But it happens, and everyone looks at this person and is absolutely amazed. And the Jews love him. They think he's the Messiah. Then at the three-and-a-half-year mark, as Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, and that Daniel prophesied in Daniel 11, he will come in and present himself to be God in the Holy of Holies there. 
he will desecrate that temple and say that he is God. And then the Jews will see that he is a phony at that time. And then they'll flee. And they'll run from him and he'll turn on the Jews and break that covenant in the middle of the three and a half year mark. And so that's what verse 4 is talking about. He's going to come into that temple. He's going to exalt himself as God. He's going to say that he needs to be worshipped as God. And, and then the Jews are going to have their eyes open. But no one else is going to have their eyes open. And they're still going to want to worship this guy. And he's going to implement the mark of the beast. And they're going to solidify that worship to him in taking that mark. And they will uh, eternally seal their doom. So Paul is, let's reiterate now, let's get back to what Paul's trying to encourage them with. He says, you can't be in the tribulation because your, your departure hasn't happened yet. You know, departure, departing of gate 14, you know, all those going to heaven, wait in line there, take your boarding pass. I mean, it's, it's going to happen just like any departure from any airport. It's going to happen in a moment in time. We're going to be caught away. And he says that hasn't happened yet. But also, secondly, the man of sin hasn't been revealed yet. So, and then he adds in verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? You know, we're only hearing one side of this conversation. You ever hear someone talking on the phone and you're trying to ascertain what the other person's saying? He's really having a one-sided conversation in a sense because he has all this history with them. He knows what he's already told them. They know what he's already told them. And he's saying, Can't, don't you remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? And the tense there, and I told you these things, is continuous. He continuously told them. It wasn't just a one-time thing during the three weeks he was physically with them. He told them over and over and over again. And then he adds there in verse 6, and now you know what is restraining. Well, we don't because we weren't on that side of the conversation. And we weren't there when he talked to them about these things. But he knows that they know what he had already said to them. And he says, now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time, he being the Antichrist. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Galatians 4.4 talks about in the fullness of time, the Messiah came. Well, there's also a fullness of time related to the revelation or the revealing of the Antichrist. And And Paul links it with something here. He says, what is restraining? He says, do you not know what is restraining? And then he personalizes and it says only he capital h only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way the antichrist is being restrained by someone and the antichrist can't come on the scene in his own timing i believe the antichrist is alive right now people say who is he and they're trying to figure it out is it this person is it that person is it our president? You know, is it, is it, uh, you know, they, they, is it Arnold Schwarzenegger? I mean, you hear all these things, you know, is it, is it Elvis? You know, maybe Elvis is alive somewhere. He's going to be the Antichrist. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus. Christians aren't supposed to be fixated on who's the Antichrist or even the Antichrist, period. We need to be aware of him. We need to know that he's in scripture. We need to have a heart for the lost because those that don't know Christ that we know are going to be deceived by this man, most likely in, in their lifetime. So we need to be aware of him, but we're not supposed to fixate on him. We're supposed to be looking for Jesus. But the Antichrist probably doesn't know that he's the Antichrist right now. And even if he did, he couldn't say, I'm going to come on the scene right now. He is being restrained. He's being uh, restrained and held back. In in Revelation chapter 6, there's this scroll with seven seals on it. And the only one that's found worthy to, to loose these scrolls is the Lord Jesus. And that first scroll that he looses 
or takes off the scroll, I believe, is the, this rider in, on a white horse that comes conquering and, be, and, and to conquer, and he's given a crown. And I believe that that's talking about the Antichrist coming to deceive. And it's an expression of God's judgment on this Christ-rejecting world there. And, but those seals are broken when Jesus removes the seals. It's not based on when the Antichrist wants to be revealed or any, any, anyone else's decision-making. It's based on what God wants to do. And so we ask the question, what is this restraining? Who is, who is the he about which he speaks or about whom he speaks where he's saying he is restraining? And I believe it's talking about the restraining work of the Holy Spirit through the church. Because we are the salt of the earth. Jesus said you're the salt of the earth. And in those days, salt wasn't supremely to make our popcorn taste better or to put on our baked potatoes or anything else. It was to preserve. It was a preservative. We are the preservatives in this world. And God is using the Holy Spirit's influence in his people to hold back the revelation of the man of sin, the lawless one, the Antichrist, from coming on the scene. And there will come a point in time where he takes us out of the way. That's the departing, I believe, he's been speaking about. When we're taken out of the way and the Spirit's influence through our lives is removed, thus allowing the man of sin to be revealed. Now, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's taken out of the world. I hear people say that sometimes. The Spirit will be gone. (laughs) Well, first of all, God's omnipresent. The Spirit is everywhere. So the Spirit can't leave the earth. But his ministry regarding the restraining work through the church will be completed. But people will be getting saved. There's the, there's the 144 male virgin Jews that come to know Christ that spread the gospel throughout the whole world. Well, they have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's revealing Christ to them and convicting them of their sin. He still has a work to do. He's still convicting the world regarding sin because the, the world's still going to need saving, obviously, during that time. But just that unique uh, preserving, uh, restraining work of the Spirit through the church will be taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be allowed to be uh, revealed. But then we see his end in verse 8. He says, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now, it's important for us to see that the Thessalonians were needing comfort. Again, they're receiving persecution. And so here he's talking about this lawless one that's going to be revealed. They're not going to meet him, but he still wants them to know and have the comfort that God's in control and he's greater than the, the Antichrist. As great as he is, and he's going to get into a lot of these so-called miracles and so forth, as great and powerful as he is, and none of us would, would be able to even come close to withstanding him apart from the Lord. All of that pales in comparison to the, the, the authority and the greatness of our God. Sometimes we think of Satan is like the opposite of God, and he is in a sense, but he's not this like this this equal, and he's just you know just as powerful. I mean, he's just like a little ant compared to a giant, and even that isn't a fair comparison. And so here, his his man, his law, his man of sin comes on the scene, who's actually indwelled by Satan. Is 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 you know how many people are indwelled by Satan himself? Maybe demons, but not many people are that important to be indwelled by Satan himself. He's indwelled by Satan himself. He's shot. He has a mortal wound to the head. And he comes back to life after three days, always trying to copy what God has done. And everyone will look at and even worship him even more because of this recovery and this so-called resurrection from the dead that, that occurs there. And they worship him even more. So he's great as far as 
the world standards and as far as man respecting another man. But God puts it in perspective for him in verse 8, and he says, the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth. This isn't like our breath in the morning, you know, where we consume people by the breath of our mouth, you know, before we get our scope out or our Listerine. Uh, this is something entirely different. In Revelation, it refers to him as like having a sword that comes out of his mouth and, and completely just annihilates him. It isn't even a battle regarding uh, the Lord Jesus and him. It's, it's not even, it's, it's so uneventful. It's just a tiny little blip in the radar screen when he comes back with his saints when he comes on that white horse when it says faithful and true and he's written king of kings and lord of lords and he comes with the armies of of heaven when we're coming behind him and all of the armies that psalm 2 describes as as trying to make war against him who sits on the throne and and wants to fight against god as crazy as that is and, and they're all culminating, first of all, to fight against the Antichrist. But then as they see the Lord Jesus coming, they just all turn their attention on him to fight him, as crazy as that is. And then he devours them and, and, and takes care of them with a word there. And it says, notice the end of verse 8, with the brightness of his coming. The word brightness is the word that we get our word epiphany from, where it's just blindingly bright. And, and just the, his glory. You see in the beginning of Revelation where John sees him. He falls on his face as though dead. I mean, just the description there is so amazing in his, in his glorified state. And here he is coming. Every eye will see him. He's going to be coming and the, the tribes of the earth will mourn. They know what they've done to him. They know how they've sinned against him and how they've rejected him. And he comes and he wipes out those armies with the brightness of his coming. That's God's perspective. That's reality of how God sees what's going to happen, and thus we should too. Verse 9, he says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And so he, he doesn't deny that it's going to be impressive regarding what he's able to do and his false miracles. You know, the, the, the magicians in Egypt could duplicate to a point what God did through Moses there. And so there is supernatural power that the enemy has. I mean, just because we see things that are supernatural, we shouldn't assume that they're of God. There's great supernatural things that occur, but they're not of God. And we need to remember, just because it's real doesn't mean it's right. And we need to test things by Scripture. The further we get in the end times and and all of that, there's going to be more and more deception coming through so-called supernatural events. And so the Antichrist is the culmination of that, as we might expect. Verse 10, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Notice it says because they did not receive the love of the truth, not that they could not. We don't believe in Reformed theology that says that God chooses some people to go to heaven and chooses some people to go to hell. And those that he hasn't elected have no possibility of receiving him. They can't receive him. He hasn't chosen them. He doesn't say that. He's holding everyone accountable who did not receive. He actually repeats it in verse 12. Look, he says that they all may be condemned who did not believe. They can, but they don't. They should, but they won't. They reject Christ. And so God allows this, this, this remember, it's part of his judgment on this world. He allows those people that have rejected already. They have it coming. It's fitting. Remember, he's already talked to them about this in chapter 1 about God's righteous judgment on this Christ-rejecting world and that it's right and it's appropriate. 
And, and so he says that's what's going to happen. That deception is going to come on those who already are perishing because they already did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And then God continues his judgment, verse 11. And for this reason, what reason? Of rejecting Christ. God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. So the question is, what is this? I believe he's already talked to them and spoken to them about specifically what this is. And he's referring back to it. And I know that they were probably very familiar, but we're not (laughs) with what he's talking about. And we can guess, uh, and I think that's most likely referring to the lie of the Antichrist. That's going to be the big lie, that he is who he is. And they're going to be impressed by this man. Sometimes people say, well, this delusion will be that the rapture was something other than what it really was. But I believe that that is only has so much mileage to it. <laughs> that to, to, go to, the, to, to go to the extreme lengths that the Antichrist will go to to describe himself as God. And again, that's what he's been talking about. God's going to allow them to continue in, their, in that deception in that, he, that he's promulgating regarding his identity through these miracles that he talked about in verse 9. And they're going to believe it. And, and sometimes we refer to this as, well... If someone misses the rapture, they hear the truth of the gospel, they reject Christ, they miss the rapture, will they have an opportunity to receive? So we don't know specifically if this is talking about people only that have never heard the gospel, that are under that uh, kind of delusion in the tribulation who never heard before. If it's talking about those people alone, or is it also talking about people that heard the gospel before the rapture, missed the rapture, you know, they say, well, I'll, I'll wait and see if you're right. And if this rapture happens, then I'll, I'll receive the Lord and I'll, I'll, I'll go to my death as a martyr, allowing my head to be decapitated because I will re- be rejecting the mark. But I think that that's not likely. I wouldn't bet my eternity on that at all. Because if you can't live for him now, with no persecution, basically, in this country, what makes you think you're going to die for him then? when God is allowing this strong delusion and these lying signs and wonders to occur about the lie, very specific lie, which I believe is, is the Antichrist saying that he is the promised one. He is the, the coming world leader and he is divine. Those lying wonders, don't, we can't underestimate the, the, the power of those things. And how, look how strong the deception is now to, to reject God and to reject the things of the Lord. Now think about some man that has all these powers and he gets mortally wounded and all these things and he does all these great things, creating world peace and probably ending world hunger and all these amazing things. It says that they will awe, there will be an awe of him and wonder regarding the Antichrist. I wouldn't bet two nickels if I were a betting man that anyone's going to survive that delusion. Um, uh, you know, but we know that people do get saved in the tribulation. But I wouldn't be banking on that. And, and so if you have today, today's a day of salvation. Receive Christ today. That's always going to be God's message. Verse 12, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, notice he doesn't say who did not believe the truth, but had intellectual issues with God. No. You know, there's no intellectual legitimate issues that anyone can have with God. God's totally fine with his word being his word saying there's enough evidence for you to believe. There's enough uh, uh, circumstantial evidence that says that I am who I am and that my Messiah is the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. And, And so he says the true reason for people's rejection is that they love unrighteousness. The Lord Jesus said in John chapter 3, this is the condemnation. That men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Not that they had intellectual issues. 
that their deeds are evil. There are moral implications to becoming a Christian. And we can't forget, especially as we share our faith with people, that they know that. They know that it means that they can't live the way that they're living if they receive Christ. And so he says, it's, you know, all of this is going to happen because they've already rejected Christ and they didn't believe the truth and they had pleasure in unrighteousness. But, here's the contrasting word there in verse 13, but we are bound to give. Totally different people. We're not those people. We're going to be departing up to heaven in the rapture. We're different. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Now, it's important that they hear that they're beloved. They're getting persecuted. They're getting, uh, you know, on the receiving end of this incredible tribulation. They need to know that they're loved by God because God from the beginning chose you. That's, again, another comforting thing. We are chosen. We are, are chosen. But we also have to respond with our will and cooperate with the Lord's wooing us by his spirit. But we, that's supposed to bring us comfort. He always speaks of being chosen regarding Christians and encouraging them, not in the context of evangelism. It's important. But it's comforting to them, he says, for salvation. Not all this judgment, all this wrath, and all this deception. God chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Not these lies that you're starting to believe about the tribulation. To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the, of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's something that they received. They received the gospel. They were changed. Paul's already referring to it over and over again. That's supposed to be a comfort to them. This is an evidence that you're on the side of truth, that your life has changed. And that's why you're not going to go through this time of tribulation. You didn't miss the rapture. You are going to depart as it, with everyone else. That You haven't missed anything. So he tells them what to do now in verse 15 and 16. Uh, he says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast. And hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by our epistle. Stand fast. They're going through difficulty. They're going through hardship. They're going through tribulation. Stand fast is just like to, to, to stand strong in the Lord, not in your own strength, in his strength. Persevere. You're in this tribulation now. The Lord could come back at any time. But God hasn't forgotten you. He loves you. He's chosen you. Now stand fast and hold to the traditions. He's not talking about traditions that are contrary to God's word. He's talking about traditions that are from God's word. That's why he says how you were taught, whether by word or by epistle. In other words, whatever I taught you in person, or Timothy taught you, or Silas taught you in person, or what you've received by our epistles, whether it's the first epistle or this epistle, hold fast to those things. Not these new things that are coming your way from people who are trying to mis misrepresent the truth. Now he pronounces a blessing on them. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation. That's what they needed. They needed consolation right now. And good hope by grace. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work, word and work. So he says... Uh, God wants to comfort you with hope and grace. I remember in his first epistle, he talked about their faith, hope, and love. In chapter 1 of this epistle, he just mentions their love and their faith. He doesn't mention their hope because they had that shaken. And he deals with that in this chapter to try to give them back their hope, their expectation that Jesus could come back at any moment. And he says that brings consolation, that brings comfort to have that hope. And how does it come? By his grace. 
nothing that you deserve, nothing that you earn by his grace. And he wants their hearts to be comforted. And that's what God wants for us. He wants our hearts to be comforted as we stand fast in whatever thing that we're going through. He wants us comforted, established, standing fast. And he also says, notice the end of verse 17, and he wants to establish us in every good word and work. We get distracted when we're going through a trial. We get distracted when we're going through tribulation. And we can think that God doesn't really care if I'm still serving and being about his business and sowing into his kingdom and, and all those things. That's not the case. These Christians were going through a tremendous difficulty. God still calls them to be faithful to what he's called them to do. And one of the hardest things to do is be faithful to serve the Lord when you're going through difficulty. But so often what he uses to help us deal with that difficulty is he uses our service and our giving our lives away and getting our focus off of ourselves and onto God and onto others. And so he's not afraid to call these Thessalonians to, to service and say, you already are serving. You already are loving one another. You're already pouring your lives out to one another. But I've called you to continue in that and excel in that and that every word and everything that you do will be glorifying to God and be an extension of God in the lives of the people that you care about and the ones that you've been entrusted to serve. So it's important for us to see. So as I close now, we are called to walk in the truth and to walk in his word. And as we look at this world get worse and worse and worse, these people calling good evil and calling evil good, and the family is being eroded, and, and marriage is getting eroded, the definition of it, and, and people are leaving uh, church, and they're, they're, they're going away from the things of the Lord, they're in love with the things of this world. All of that comes and buffets us and, 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 and causes tremendous uh, confusion at times and difficulty. Then we have the enemy pouring on. All of those things can have us lose heart. And God comes in and he says, look to Jesus. Don't look at the Antichrist. Don't focus on anything but the Lord Jesus coming and where he has you serving and where he has you following him. And do that in, in his power by his grace and be encouraged and be established and have, be comforted and, and to, to stand fast with the word that he's already revealed to us. To stand fast, to even when we're going through incredible difficulty, to keep his word, to obey him. Obedience is always important, but it's really important when we're going through trials and difficulty that we're obeying him. And so often through that, he gives us so much compensating grace and, 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 and love and, and patience to deal with it that we're just sustained through it. And, and then we can look back and say, you knew what you were doing. And he surely does know what he's doing. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your encouragement. We thank you, Lord, that we're not appointed to wrath. We thank you, Lord, that we're not going to have to go through this horrific time on this earth that's coming. A time that you said, Lord Jesus, humanity has never experienced up to that point when you said it, and we'll never see another time worse than that time. Thank you that we that know you here will not have to face that. And we thank you, Lord, that we're looking to you. And I pray that you would establish us in every good work. And I pray that you would comfort our hearts. And I pray that you would help us to stand fast and hold to the traditions, Lord, that we see in your word, the, the theological wealth that we see laid out in your scriptures. We pray that this family here and every person that's represented that isn't even here, Lord, all of us that represent this body of believers, that we would serve you well and serve in your strength by your grace and by your power no matter how bad things get in this world. We thank you that you win, Lord. We've read the end of the book. 
We know that you win. We thank you that we're on your side. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.